Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Superversive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person, real or imagined, or the dark forces of Outre-Terre. It is not intended for children. Mr. Pinkerton and Stretcher, I hope this letter finds you well. Let this missive serve to tell you my wife Colleen and I have arrived in San Francisco and have rented an office for the Pinkerton Paranormals. I already have a couple of leads that might pan out. The report of my train ride follows. Mr. Stretcher rode with us on the train from Silver Cliff, Colorado, to Denver. At the Denver station, we separated, with my wife and I remaining on this train to head west while he disembarked for another line back to St. Louis. To my wife's consternation, the trains weren't offering limited stop tickets for this route. Unfortunately, the train from Denver had slowed down in the mountains for a herd of elk meandering over the tracks. This put us in Grand Junction after midnight, and I feared the train out would have already left us as we hurried in the autumn chill with our luggage from the arrival platform to the main station. The full moon shone down from a baleful eye until a thick cloud cover obscured it. The large station had very few travelers when we arrived, and there were only a few employees walking around. It was only barely warmer than outside. Stumbling under our luggage, why does such a petite woman need so many clothes? I can make a pair of jeans last several days on the ranch. I flagged down a sandwich boy restocking for the next leg of the journey and showed him our tickets. The blonde boy had blue eyes and an infectious smile. His voice had the shifting pitch of one just passing into manhood when he answered, Good sir, the arrivals and departure are listed on the chalk boards around the station. However, I assume you have not changed trains before? I confirmed his suspicion and let him have the tickets. They read train 86. Funny, I could have sworn they said train 88 before. His jaw dropped and he pushed the tickets back into my hand. Is this a joke, mister? He rushed off without another word. Bemused, I turned to Colleen. What happened? My pretty wife blinked her green eyes. I neither know nor care. We need to get on the train before I drop this bag. She wore a simple blue dress for traveling and a white hat askew on her red hair with blue flowers hanging off the top side. I hope that one day women's hats passed out of fashion. She looked so much better with a simple bonnet than what she was wearing now. The train was stopped several times going through Utah and Nevada, but we wouldn't have to change trains again until the California line. Colleen found our train number on the very bottom of the chalkboard, almost illegible and in yellow chalk instead of white. A large clock hung on the wall just beside the chalkboard for the passenger's convenience. Through these doors, I said, we have three minutes. We hurried out as a tall and pale conductor called for us to board. We were the only people from the station getting on at this late hour. The wooden platform squeaked a bit under my feet as we hustled through the open door. Hanging lights kept the platform bright. I could see the engine just past the platform. I stared at it in happy wonder. While the station had all the amenities and a recent redecoration, the engine was old. I used to spend many hours at my father's ranch watching these trains go by. Colleen, it's just like the ones I used to watch. Two porters took our bags and shuffled easily toward the baggage car. I marveled. They were average-sized men, while I am large and stocky as befits a man who wrestles cattle daily. I stood erect, my spine stretching back into the shape God gave it. Fine, dear, she says, stepping onto the step. The bearded conductor stopped her and pointed further back. The first two cars are full. You'll need to board on the third car. He then called out, all aboard. 
We hurried to the indicated car and started to climb in. Colleen was a bit faster than me, because I was still recovering from the bags. I was just far enough behind my wife to praise God at her ability to sashay. It looked to be the same conductor helper on board, but I hadn't seen him moving between cars as we passed. I assumed that the uniform and beard made them look alike. The conductor said nothing and kept his hat pulled low where I couldn't see his face. He did not touch Colleen's hand, but took hold of her sleeve near the elbow. We moved through to find empty seats. Land's sake, she said. This car is almost empty. They must have packed the other two. She sat down about a quarter of the way back, and I sat across from her in the facing seat so we could talk. No sooner had we settled in than the train jerked beneath us and began to move. Each chug came a little faster than the prior, just like the one from Silver Cliff to Denver, and then from Denver to Grand Junction. Colleen sighed as she leaned back to relax. That's a nice rhythm to this train. It'll put me right to sleep. So much for talking, I thought. Tickets, please. Show me your tickets, the conductor said, his voice echoing oddly in the near-empty car. I held out the yellow paper of our two tickets. The conductor punched them and went on. The tall man moved with a slow and practiced walk as the train car gathered its speed. Colleen set up when he had passed. That man is odd. I don't think I can sleep with him near. We had been married five years. I knew to trust her when she spoke of things strange. When we first met, I bet her that she couldn't stay all night in Silvercliff's Haunted Cemetery. Not only did she win, she found out where the dancing lights came from. Turns out Silvercliff Cemetery was built near a ferry mound. Colleen came from a long line of women with the sight. No one was near us, so I turned on the gas light above for a reading light, then changed seats to sit next to my wife. Do you have that letter from Mr. Stretcher, she asked. This would be a good time to read it. I dug into my coat for the letter in question. Mr. Stretcher told me not to read it until I was on the train out of Grand Junction. My wife reached into her overcoat and pulled out a dime novel she had picked up in Denver. The Western Weekly's cover proclaimed a story about a man trapped in the Arizona desert with a cougar. I knew the magazine, having read it since the first issue, and it would have at least two more shorter stories within. I opened the letter from Stretcher and read to myself, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Clausen, I have been impressed with your courage in the small cases you have taken for the company already. While it is true you are going to San Francisco to open an office there, your work begins on the train tonight. Before the Pinkerton Paranormals formed, our normal agents kept track of rumors, including those for the very train you should be riding on right now. I paused and looked at Colleen. You'll want to hear this. She shifted uncomfortably in the seat. Can you wait a few minutes? I suddenly need to find the laboratory. Without another word, she went further into the car. While waiting, I read on. We arranged the timing of your trains to put you in Grand Junction on the night and time that the phantom train pulls into the station. We could not tell you of this because the train will not allow boarding by those who know it is otherworldly. Your mission is to find out what is going on with this train and report back to me. I sat staring at the paper for a full minute, wondering if my plans constituted justifiable homicide. I suppose this is what I signed on with as a Pinkerton paranormal. My wife returned a few fantasies of Mr. Stretcher's quick and painless death later. I'd get to the painful deaths. Soon. She sat down next to me, her arms visibly trembling as she took my meaty hand in her thin one. She motioned for me to lean close to her. The other passengers are dead, she whispered. I know was the only thing I could reply. Mr. Stretcher's letter explains this is a phantom train. Our mission is to weasel out what's going on with it. Tell me about the other passengers. When I came out of the laboratory, I saw they all had a sickly blue glow. She chuckled nervously. I'm glad I saw it afterwards. None of the other passengers tried to talk to me, but none were asleep. When they looked up at me, it was like they were hungry for my soul. Oh, Rob, 
It puts shivers in my spine that I haven't had since hearing that banshee 10 years ago. She'd seen the banshee shortly after finding the fairy cemetery, the same day her grandmother died. Colleen had taken her rosary beads from her neck and began praying. I heard her mention a St. Sebastian. Ours was a mixed marriage. I grew up Methodist. I couldn't stop her from doing those prayers to Mary and the saints, but it never sat well with me. She had agreed to never do so in my presence. That she was breaking her word showed me more than anything else how seriously she took the situation. Will you be okay if I poke around? I didn't want to leave her alone, but something inside me made me hurry. She nodded. Just come back. Little Robbie needs us both. I hoped my smile reassured her. We'd left the little guy in Silver Cliff with my parents so we could find a place to live in San Francisco. I promised to do so. She grabbed the sleeve of my coat as I started to leave. Her grip squeezed tightly. Don't eat or drink anything from the train, no matter what. I thanked her for the reminder and began my weaseling. I had had no idea what being a Pinkerton paranormal meant when I took the job. Mr. Stretcher had offered the job after the cowboys and I shot down a Thunderbird stealing cattle from the ranch. That story made the papers all the way back to Missouri, he said. Unfortunately, the Denver paper hadn't sent the picture of us posing over the flying thing's corpse. I prayed fervently for a little bit of the sight my wife had, my hand grasping the cross I carried in my pocket. Sight would make this job much easier. Speaking of jobs, I wondered why I had taken this job instead of the Shackelford monster hunting outfit that came looking for me about the same time. Employee dissatisfaction is probably not the thing you're accustomed to reading in field reports, I imagine. The sandwich boy suddenly in front of me locked to have scared me half to death. He wasn't the same as the boy in the station. This one had brown hair and was taller. A covered basket hung from his left arm. Sandwich, mister? I know it's late, but some passengers just can't sleep in the cars. I got egg salad or ham and cheddar. Ten cents each. Maybe one for your missus back there, too? He waved something wrapped in butcher paper under my nose. It certainly smelled more delicious than any other egg salad I'd eaten. We ate on the train out of Denver. Maybe some milk to drink? Warmed up, it'll ease you right to sleep. Only a nickel, he dug in the basket. No, thank you. I just wondered. I trailed off. Was he like being alive, or was he dead like my wife said all the others were? If he could tell me about the train, it might wrap up the case. On the other hand, these passengers might not be friendly once they knew we knew. For once, I decided to err on the side of caution. Never mind. It's not important. He nodded and went on his way. I watched him, wondering if he were alive. His actions answered when he sold a sandwich to one of the dead passengers. The full moon broke through the clouds just then, bathing that passenger in its lights. Gashes and cuts covered his face. His left arm was broken. Those were his death wounds. He hadn't died in his sleep. The boy's clothes appeared ripped and torn in the light. I couldn't trust anybody, much less the trainsman. How could I solve the case? Deciding on my fine clues on the other cards, I continued to the front of this passenger car. The thin conductor stopped me at the door between cars. Where had he come from? I hadn't seen him there. Where are you going, my good man? He held out one hand, palm towards me. I just wanted some fresh air to see the other cars. This is my first night on a train. He crossed his arms over his chest. It looks just like this one. The train does not have a dining car, cattle car, or cargo car. It has the engine, tender, luggage car, three passenger cars, and a caboose. I could see he wasn't going to let me pass. Smiling and with my hands outspread, I stepped backwards to return to Colleen. I silently prayed to find what was going on with this train. I sat down with Colleen and shook my head. I found out nothing. She found herself with a weekly. I've got a bad feeling that we have a time limit. Mr. Stretcher, I have learned over the years to never question my wife's instinct pertaining to the supernatural. 
and as we pondered our next move, the sandwich boy stopped next to us. Sandwiches? I looked up at him. Colleen started to wave him away, but I stopped her. I'll take one of the ham and cheddar, son. I dug into my pocket for a dime, but found two nickels instead. We exchanged items. One in each hand, he held the two up in front of his eyes as if they were tiny spectacles. It sent a shiver down my spine. Rob, you can't eat that, Colleen said. I know, but we can still pay him. The boy glanced around furtively. Not seeing another employee, he said, Come on, we've got to get you two out of here. My wife and I followed him to the back of the passenger car. My name's Stanley, he said. I'm Rob. This is Colleen. Nice to meet the two of you. You two know this is a ghost train? He wasn't asking a question. It ran onto a broken bridge in the 1850s. It was my first ride to the Sandwich Boy and my last among the living. If you don't get off before the crash, you'll die and join the ride next year. See that old man about halfway up the car? He rode last year. The woman across the aisle with the boy, five years ago. Colleen covered her mouth to stifle any noise as he pointed to the glowing passengers. I glanced around for the emergency brake pull that every train car contained. Seeing it above, I pulled down hard. Nothing happened. As if in response to my action, the conductor appeared at the front of the car. He snarled and headed towards us, a pale blue glow around his lean body and coming out of his eyes. The few people in the car shrank back as he came near, whimpering fearfully. Quick, this way, Stanley shouted at us. We followed him out of the passenger car into the caboose, stepping over the connection with ease. Colleen might be right pretty and sweet, but she never lacked for gumption. Of course, you know that, Mr. Stretcher, from the two cases in Colorado. Stanley bent down low to the floor and waved his hand over the connection. The two cars separated with a clank. The train started pulling ahead of the caboose, but we were still ambling along right behind. The conductor glared at us from the other car. In the moonlight, his face appeared to be a single bruise. Will this stop before we get to the bridge, Colleen asked. Heck no, Stanley shouted. I can see the pass already. I knew we couldn't jump. The speeding caboose was running alongside a mountain. Where's the brake? I shrieked, seeing the place of the accident ahead of us. At the back. We plunged through the door and hustled to the rear of the caboose. Instead of the rope to pull, a caboose had a wheel to turn. The three of us grabbed on and strained. It wouldn't budge. Pray, I commanded. I heard Colleen mumble. St. Christopher, patron of strength, grant me now that we may stop this caboose. Steady my hand and guide my eye. I said my own prayers. Jesus, Savior of my soul, now save our bodies by granting me the strength to turn this break. Saying nothing, Stanley just strained at the wheel, blood running down a gash across his forehead. In front of the car, we heard the train whistle, the brakes scream, and then a rumble and crash as it went to the ravine. The wheel turned beneath our grasp, the iron wheels screeching as the brakes gripped them. The caboose screeched to a halt just feet from the bridge. The ghostly hole in front of us sealed itself once we stopped. Colleen grabbed me and hugged me, her tears staining the shoulder of my coat. The boy grinned up at us and clapped my arm. You did it, mister. We did it, son, I replied. Tell me now, why did you help us? A soft white light broke through the clouds above and surrounded him. Because you bought a sandwich, even though you knew I was a ghost. I believe John Wesley called such an act a means of grace. A work of mercy, I whispered, giving to those in need with no hope of repayment. Colleen reached out to hug him, but her slender arms passed right through. Oh, Stanley, she cried. Don't worry, I'm heading upstairs, he said, rising into the air, slowly at first, but picking up speed. Look for me when you get there. With that, the boy sped off to heaven, his laughter echoing off the mountains. The light faded. Colleen wiped tears from her eyes. He was so helpful. The caboose itself faded away, depositing us gently on the ground. We'll need to walk back to the last town we passed. That was about five miles back. Oh, our bags. They were on the front car. Colleen slapped her thighs in agitation. I smiled. 
thinking about how I wouldn't be carrying any of them. Well, Mr. Pinkerton and Stretcher, that's it. We followed the tracks back to town, desperate to get on the rail to California. The old ticket master at the train station took one look at our punch tickets and screamed through his white mustache. Seems like we're the first to ever come back from the ghost train. I don't know if you intend to have more investigators next year or just let it ride. If the first, I'm glad it will have to be someone besides us. We made it to San Francisco by other, uneventful trains and rented the office. This city has a different spirit than Denver. Colleen has founded a potential house for us and spent most of our traveling money on replacement clothes. I will say that she looks good in San Francisco fashion. Until next time, yours truly, Rob Clausen. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio, licensed under an attribution non-commercial, share-alike international license. Today's episode was written and performed by Frank Luke. Ben Wheeler edits, directs, produces, and herds cats. Kid Dickerson performs our audio editing. Visit us on Facebook, read articles on superversivesf.com, or listen to us on unauthorized Acast, iTunes, or Spotify. Contact us through Twitter at, at Pinkerton's Ghosts, email us at Pinkerton's Ghosts at gmail.com, or send us noble messenger possums with messages strapped to their backs. Don't worry, they know how to find us. Thank you for listening, and good luck.